2 Corinthians chapter 5, if you would, 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. Sure appreciate our pastor and the opportunity to be able to preach tonight. And uh, of course, you understand the role of a staff um, that uh, we serve God's people. But at the same time, um, one of the greatest responsibilities that we have outside of reaching people is uh, to bear the burden even of our pastor and to help him along the way. And thankful to be able to do that even tonight. And so uh, you know how we feel about the preaching of God's word. And we're thankful for uh, the preparation that he does each and every week, the time and the energy that's put in. We're gifted, we're blessed uh, by our pastor and had one of our elderly ladies that walked out of the service the other night, shook my hand and she said, I don't know what you've been doing to our pastor, but keep it up. <laughs> I said, I agree. I agree. I said, I ain't doing anything. It's God. And so we're, we're thankful, Thank, thankful for the preaching of God's word and thankful for the faithfulness of it. So I, I'm grateful to be able to be a, a small help in some way to our pastor and and uh, pray for him every day. And I know that you do the same as well. And glad to serve with him and uh, for him and, and uh, with God's people as well. Second Corinthians chapter number five, and we'll begin reading in verse number one. Second Corinthians chapter five and beginning in verse number one. Paul says, for we know that if our earthly house, that would be this body, our earthly house, of this tabernacle were dissolved. Now, he uses the word uh, earthly house, tabernacle, uses the word dissolved. That means we're living in a temporal body, short-lived. We have a building of God, and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That's opposite. So something uh, very temporal as opposed to something very eternal. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life. In other words, something better is coming. There's something more important than this life, he says. Now, he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God. In other words, God gave us life here. God's going to give us or has given us eternal life. Who hath also given us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, in other words, present here on this earth, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Paul, Paul gives us this tension here that, yes, we enjoy living life here, and yes, we enjoy the things that we get to do here in life, but our ultimate goal is that we would spend eternity with our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying there. Wherefore, we labor. In other words, Paul says, don't just wish about what you can have, labor. Be, be, it, be involved here. In other words, be plugged in. <laughs> Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, 
We persuade men. But we that are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them, which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. In other words, Paul says, we're not crazy. <laughs> we're doing this for the Lord, and we're doing this for your sake. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. <laughs> so tonight I'd like to preach a message entitled, why is ministry so important? Why is ministry so important? Of course, a subtitle. Are you living your best life now? No, I haven't been reading Mr. Osteen. No. But according to this passage, according to this passage here, the best life that you and I can have is designed by God purposed by God and fulfilled in us and through us as we serve him and minister to others. That's our best life. That's our best life. No, it's not having the things of this world. It's, it's this, doing ministry for God and with God for the sake of others and for his glory. So really, are you living your best life now? So Father, once again, thank you for our time together, thank you for the blessing that it is to be a child of God, to have eternal life, to know that I am secure and that my life is in your hands and I have nothing to fear nor worry nor fret. Lord, as Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we, we walk by faith and not by sight. We know that this world is, is temporal, it's short, and God, there is much to live for and much to do. And God, I pray that uh, our desire would simply be to be pleasing unto thee. And Lord, I'm thankful that we get to assemble tonight. I'm thankful, Father, for Southwest Baptist Church. I'm thankful for now coming on 71 years of faithful ministry to Oklahoma City and to our state and to the regions around this world of sharing the gospel and the truth of of, that changes lives and that can only bring a difference in a person's life. I pray, God, that you'd help us tonight. I pray, God, ultimately that you would convict where we need to be convicted, that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged. Would you encourage us where we need to be encouraged? And would you remind us, O oh Father, of, of why we're here and why Southwest Baptist Church exists and why ministry is so important? And so, Father, we'll give you glory and we'll give you thanks in Christ's wonderful name. Amen. You may be seated. It's in the middle of the night. You're in a deep sleep. Unbeknownst to you, your house is on fire and it is being engulfed in flames. Your neighbor Joshua calls 911 while simultaneously running to your bedroom window and pounding on your window trying to wake you up. 
He gains interest into your house and makes a way for you to be delivered and ushers you to safe passage. You escape safely to fresh air and come out of the crumbling inferno of what was once your dwelling place. You're greeted by News 9, who proceed to interview, asking you how it felt to be saved from utter loss and ruin. You reply, I can't believe it. I'm alive. I'm free. I've been delivered from death and utter ruin. I don't, I don't know what I would have done. Well, in fact, I do know I would have been dead. I have no idea of the imminent danger that I was in. I was dead to the world. The reporter then says, we understand that your neighbor, a man named Joshua, miraculously delivered you. You reply, yes, that is correct. As the firemen pull a body out of the inferno, the reporter turns his attention to the body, the body of your neighbor, Joshua, who died while rescuing you. The reporter turns back to you and says, Sir, what do you have to say? Trembling, you say he was a dear friend and a good man. I'm glad to be alive. But I don't know what I'm going to do about this house. I don't know where I'm going to go. In fact, we'll do our best to rebuild here, and maybe you can come back and have another story. Now, folks, every one of us are influenced by various motives. Something motivated your neighbor, Joshua, to call 911. Something motivated him to awaken you. Something motivated him to save your life, to rescue you. Something motivated News 9 to be the first one on the scene, (laughs) to have the exclusive story. Which brings us to a very important question tonight, and that is this. Why do we do ministry? Why? Why do we have a youth night? Why do we have a Sunday school campaign? Somebody said, well, so Brother Ted can win. (laughs) Why do we have a friend day? Why do we go to all the effort to, to uh, spend weeks of preparation and inviting and, and doing what we do? Why do we have a missions conference? Why do we have youth camps? Why do we have a ladies retreat? Why do we have vacation Bible school and spend a whole week running buses? Why do we have a bus ministry? Why do we go door knocking? Why do we have patch? Why do we have peewee? Why do we have Sunday school activities to invite others to come? Why do we do these things? I think it's a good, valid question for us to ask. Because if what motivates us is not the right influence, we might be unwilling to take risk, like Joshua. We might be unwilling to sacrifice, to give, to labor. Now, let's be real clear tonight. If you're, if you're born again, if you're a child of God, and I, I think that a majority of folks here tonight would, would say, that's me. Yes, I'm a child of God. I'm born again. I have, a, I have a date that I can go back to, and I know for sure, 100% sure that I'm a child of God, that I'm on my way to heaven tonight. Listen to me. If that's the case, you and I are in ministry. You're in ministry. 
Just as pastor talked about this morning, you don't have to have an office and you don't have to have a title. You don't have to have these things. You don't have to be pastor to be in ministry. You don't have to be a missionary on a foreign field to, to be in ministry. You don't have to be a staff person to be in ministry. So let me, let me, uh, let's, let's journey back through this passage here and see if the following is not true of every single believer that is here tonight. Number one, our time here on earth is limited. Paul made it abundantly clear. I mean, uh, in this passage here, in fact, verses one through eight, that uh, we, we have this earthly body. We have this tabernacle, this tent. You know, you, know, you set up a tent and you, you tear it down. You don't, you don't live in a tent. or Well, most people don't, but some do. But, but a tent represents something that is very, very temporal. And our life here, listen, it, it goes by so very quickly. And how many would testify tonight or how many, how many of our elderly folks would say to the young generation or to say to those that are the youth here tonight, be careful what you do and be careful how you live because your life goes by so very fast and so very quickly. Our time here on earth is very limited. One man said that it's basically you have a, a, a time that you're born and a time that you die and a dash. And that is your life. Number two, deep down, we all know that there is something more to life than just being here. We know that. It, it, it gnaws at us. There's something more to life than just getting up and going to work and, and eating and coming home and going to bed. I mean, Paul, Paul, again, he says in verse number two, he says, we groan earnestly, desiring this craving to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. In other words, Paul said, I, I enjoy living. I mean, nobody would argue with the apostle Paul that he enjoyed living. Uh, he enjoyed ministry and he enjoyed people and he enjoyed the fact that he get to serve God. But Paul said, we groan. We have this hunger, this desire, this appetite to leave this world and to leave these things and to be present with our Savior forever and ever, not to be burdened with sin and not to be burdened with the death of our loved ones and, and those that pass on. And, and listen to me, we're, we're experiencing that. We're, we're dealing with that even right now. I mean, how many folks have passed on to heaven from here? And, and it's almost like we, we, we want to be there. We want to go there with them. And Paul says, Paul said, listen, uh, we understand that we know that there is something more important than this life and just living here and just existing. Amen. He says basically in verses 9 through 11, there is a day of reckoning that is approaching. Right. Not only is this life short, not only do we groan to be there, but listen, we know that we're accountable to God, that, that there is a day of reckoning. We're all going to stand before God and give an account whether, whether we've done good or whether we've done bad. We, we are going to give an account for this life. In other words... God is going to say, why did you do what you did? Why did you spend your time that way? Why did you spend your money that way? Why did you, why did you invest this way? Why did you go here? Why did you go there? There is a day of reckoning that is coming. We, we discover in verses 12 through 13 that life is not about us. It's not about us. Paul, Paul said it, it's not about us commending ourselves. It's not about us uh, making a name for ourselves. And in fact, it's, it's very clear that, that what we do and whether you think we're crazy or whether you think we're beside ourselves, Paul simply says it is for God and it is for you. And then how about this? God is serious about how we conduct our life. He's very serious about that. God is very serious about how he is to be made known. He says in verse number 11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. Now, I, I, I think that most of us would know this and most of us would get this. And it's not that we're scared to death of God. 
It's not that we, we shriek in fear of God, but we understand this. God is holy and he's righteous and he expects things to be done right. And so, so because of that, I want to please him. I want to live for him. I want to do right. I want to honor him. I want, to, I want my life to, to reflect who he is. And so Paul says, knowing therefore the, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. In other words, we want them to see him. We want them, we want them to know him. Well, again, that's why we have a friend day. We want people to know God. So God is serious about how he's to be made known. He's serious about how that we care for others. And then how about this in verse number 14? The love of Christ should influence us to live for him. Notice Paul says the love of Christ. The love of Christ, verse number 14, constraineth us. The word constrain, it means this. It means to hold fast. It means to bind. It means to put in a, in a place and position oneself. It, it means this, to bind. And you say, wait a minute, that's why, that's why I don't want to be a Christian. That's why I don't want to be sold out because I don't want my life bound. I don't, I don't want to be constrained. I don't want to have, have my life be, be like this all the time and have to live up to the expect, ex, expectations of a church and, and of a pastor and of people. No, I want my freedom and I want to live and I want to go and I want to do what I want to do. Paul said, the love of Christ constraineth me. It it binds me. It it, it keeps me. That's really the idea. It keeps me in a right place. Now, let me ask you this. How many of you, how many of you men, how many of you men, you have a lovely wife sitting beside you. How many of you men would say, well, it doesn't really mind if I'm bound to her or not, or if she's bound to me. No, I think that you understand very clearly that you want her to be bound to you and you want to be bound to her. You don't want liberty. You don't want freedom. You don't want to be able to do what you want to do. No, you want, you want to have that binding. I'm thankful. I'm thankful that I have a wife and we're, we can be faithful to one another and we can, we can love each other. We can serve together and we can conduct ministry and life together. I'm thankful for that. Paul said the love of Christ. Notice that he didn't say the love for Christ. It's not my love to him that binds me. It's the love of Christ. It's, it's what he is and what he's done that, that has bound me to this. Paul says, look at all he's done for me. The love of Christ. So it constrains me. It causes me to want to live for him. When I think about who he is and what he's done. I think we could also say that the love for Christ should do that. Sure. I love Christ, but the only reason I love Christ is because he's first loved me, right? So the love of Christ causes me to want to live for him. The love for Christ about what he's done causes me to want to live for him. In fact, the love of Christ is always superior to our love for Christ. It's always superior. He loves me far more than I could ever love him. (laughs) And so here's a problem. We're very good at living for ourselves. I don't think I have to convince any of of that. It's natural for us, isn't it? It's natural for you to live for yourself. It's natural for you to do for yourself. It's natural for you to to want things for yourself. It's natural for you to to want and to have and to crave and to be and to do and, 
and all of those things. I was in the bathroom before, before church and there were several of our young men that were in the, in the bathroom and they were washing their hands and, and, uh, and they were looking at each other. It was almost like the disciples, you know, who is the greatest? And, and uh, one of them said, no, I'm taller than you. No, no, I'm taller. And they were sitting, they were getting on their tippy toes and, and, uh, and, and listen, what, what, what were they communicating? What were they saying? It's about me, right? Because we're very good at living for ourselves. No one has to sit us down and train us to live for ourselves. In fact, it's very unnatural for us to live for anything or anyone other than ourselves. It takes the supernatural to do that. And so something happened to change our thinking about that. You say, you say wait, wait a minute, if, if it's natural for me to live for myself, if, it, if, it's, if, it's, if it's innate, if it's part of my nature to live for myself, then how possibly could I change my thinking about that? Well, something happened. Something changed our thinking and something changed our desires. Something has changed our, our, uh, our focus. There's a new direction. There's a new reason for living. There's a, there's a, there's a, listen, when you get up in the morning on a Sunday morning, you have reason to come to church. You're not like, well, there's nothing else to do. So I guess I'll come to church. No, you, you say, I, I get to come to church. I get to hear the preaching of God's word. I get to grow today. I get to become more like Christ today new focus. And so in dying, listen, in dying, life was offered to those who were dead. Are you, are you following that? In dying, in other words, what Christ has done for us, as was just sung, life was offered to those who were dead. What does he say in verse number 14? For the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge or we make this conclusion. We, we measure all of the details here that if one died for all, what does it say? Then we're all dead. And so in dying, Jesus offered life to those who were dead. All were dead. The Bible says we were dead in trespasses and sin in Ephesians chapter 2. Turn with me if you would. Hold your place there in 2 Corinthians and, and turn with me to uh, the book of Romans and chapter number 5. Romans chapter number 5. I want you to see this. There's many more verses, but I just want to point, point out these couple of verses here. Romans chapter 5 and verse number 15 says, But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift, for the judgment was by one to condemnation. But the free gift is of many offenses unto what? Justification. So, so Paul says, we, we have death in Adam. We have sin in Adam. We have, we have uh, misery in Adam. But he says, we have, we have grace in God. We have deliverance in God. We have justification in God. Look at verse number 17. For if by one man's offense death reign by one, much more they which receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Back to our text in 2 Corinthians, what did he say there? For the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. So all were dead. All needed a savior and one 
died for all. You know how precious that is? Every single one of us were dead in trespasses and sin. And one, and only one, could die for you. Only one could take your place. You say, you say, Brother David, I get that. I understand it. Listen to me. I think that sometimes we forget and we, we lose sight of the, fa- of the fact how precious salvation really is. How great the gift of eternal life is. All of us were thrust into sin. All of us were born into sin. Every single, every single one of us were dead in our trespasses and sin. But one died for all. And he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so by his death, we were set free to serve him. So in his death, we were given life or the ability to have life. But by his death, we were set free to serve him. Now think about this for just a second. Was not that the original purpose of God creating mankind? Was it not the purpose of God creating man so that we would bring glory and praise and honor and uh, that we would, we would exalt him and praise him? But what happened? Obviously, sin entered into the world and death by sin, so that death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. But listen to me, by his death, we were set free to serve him. And now we can go back to our original purpose, back to our original design, and we can live for him, serve him, and glorify him. But listen to me. We don't have the capacity to do that without the death, burial, and resurrection. We could try as we may, but without the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, and the resurrection, which is what we call the good news, without that, we have no capacity. We have no ability to bring glory and honor and praise unto him. So through his death, we were set free to serve him. We don't even have the ability to honor him without the acceptance of salvation. And so he did for us what we could not do for ourselves, so that he could do through us what we cannot do. Amen. I hope you're following that. He did for us what we could not do so that he could do through us what we could not do for others. So it's through the death of Jesus Christ that all of this has happened. Look at the third thing. Through his death, he set us free to truly live. Where there was once death, there is life. Now, you can go on the side of the road and, and uh, you can see a deer that's uh, mutilated on the side of the road and it's dead and you can't bring it back to life. As much as you may try. You say, look at the size of that thing. I want it to be alive again. No, you cannot. Listen, you cannot bring life back to that which is dead. You don't have the ability to do so. I don't have the ability to do so. Dead is dead. You say, that's very basic, Brother David. Yes, dead is dead, but alive should be what? Alive. And God, through his death, has set us free to truly live. I mean, think about the world. The world lives for themselves, don't they? What are the results? The results are selfishness. Everything is, is ego-driven, it's dog-eat-dog, it's barbaric, it's shameful, it's carnal. There's, there's regret and there's brokenness and there's sorrow and there's shame. But everything about Christ exemplifies life. In Christ, there's mercy. In Christ, there's compassion. 
In Christ, there's grace. In Christ, there's tenderness. In Christ, there's forgiveness. In Christ, there's, there's restoration. There's rede- redemption. There is healing. There is love. I mean, I mean, think of it as life as opposed to death. Everything in this world is death. It's dying. I mean, we're entering into the fall season and, and the leaves are falling and things are dying and I'm pulling up plants out of my garden. Why? They're dead. And I spent all summer and I'm like, they're dead now. I spent all that money and all that time and I can't even look at it. I mean, it's death. Listen, everything about this world, you say, oh my goodness, listen to me. But Christ is the one that'll bring us life for every single thing. And then this, with his death, he set us free to a greater purpose. Well, how does that, how does that take place? Well, I think Paul gives us the answer here. Paul, obviously, this whole chapter, in fact, in chapter number five, the whole chapter has to do with change. You could, you could go through every single verse and everything, every single verse has to do with this, that there's a change to our body. There's a change to our, our standing. There's a change to our position in this life. We're going we're gonna to leave this world and we're going to be members and, and uh, participants in the new world to come. We're going to be judged for the things that we did in this world and we're going to glorify, honor, and praise God and we're not going to deal with the things of this world. And, and then listen, with it, everything that we do is supposed to be this, helping to change the lives of other people. It's all about change. Everything about the whole chapter is about change. And so he set us free to a greater purpose, but, but how do we get that mindset? How do we, how do we, how do we live in such a way that ministry becomes important? How do we have this right focus? How do we, how do we live this way? Well, I think that Paul, if we just grasp here in verse number 14 and verse number 15, I think that we see that first of all, that life comes from another. Life comes from another. Life doesn't come from me. I can't generate life. I can't, I can't generate those things, but life comes from another. Life comes from death. That's, that, that's, that's foreign to us, isn't it? But life comes from death. How do we have eternal life? Jesus died. How do we have forgiveness of sin? Jesus gave his life for us. So life comes from death. Life comes from submission. Notice what he says in verse number 15. I I love this passage. Paul said, we've come to this conclusion in verse number 14 that, that one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live... Okay, can I, can, I, can I say this without you thinking I'm trying to change the word of God because that's not my intent. But, but think about it this way. Can, can we read it this way? And that he died for all that they which were once dead. Right, because we were dead in our trespasses and sin, but now we have life. We have life now. We have a reason to live. We have a reason to serve. We have a reason to do and and go about where we do. And so Paul said, when I think about this and when I consider this, that, that, that one died for all. All were dead. All needed a savior. Every single person on this earth is dead in their trespasses and sin. And so when I consider the fact that, that God gave his life for me, that life comes from another, that life comes from death, I I understand this, how very important I have what I have. In other words, uh, consider this with me this evening. When we sing a song like, when I survey the wondrous cross. If I really think about the words to that, and Brother Aaron challenges us that way, Brother Floyd used to do the same thing, challenges, listen to the words and think about the words that you're singing. When I think about that, 
I don't want to live more carnally. I don't want to live more selfishly. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to satisfy myself when I give myself to thinking about what Christ has done for me. I mean, think about where would you be tonight? What would your life look like? What would your family look like? What would your life look like? What would your life consist of tonight had Christ not died for you? Had Christ not forgiven you? Had Christ not opened up your understanding to the truth of the gospel and had somebody that presented the truth? Where would you be? And so when we give our attention to think about Christ died for me and gave his life for me, then here's what he says. And that he died for all, that they which live, well, that's you, you have eternal life, should not henceforth live unto themselves. Now, before you got saved and before I got saved, you were living for yourself. Our friend, Brother Garth, he got saved when he was 51 years old. By his own testimony, I've said this many times, by his own testimony, he said this. He said it was like, it like the scales were taken off my eyes and he saw the world for what it was for the very first time. You know what he was saying? I'm alive! <laughs> I'm living! <laughs> this life is not about death. This life is not about that which consumes me. I'm alive. I can see. I can understand. I, I can appreciate. I can, I can value that which is important. I, I have life. I have good because of God. That's what Paul is saying here. God died for me and he gave his life for me. And listen to me, before, before you and I got saved, we were living for ourselves. Let me ask you this question. Why would we go on living for ourselves? when we truly understand what Christ has done for us. Why would we go on living the same way? You say, well, I don't, I don't know about that. I don't even know. What was your life before you got saved? What were you living for? Well, I didn't really care about church. Didn't have a love for God's people. Didn't really care about God's word. Maybe you came to church and maybe you were here. Didn't, listen, there, there was not a love and a compassion for the things of God, were there? There was not a desire for those things. There was not an appreciation for the truth of the gospel. There was none of those things. And so when we get saved, our eyes ought to be open. Our understanding ought to be open. There ought to be a greater appreciation for what Christ has done for us. So why would we go on living the same way? Knowing that it took the death of God's son to bring that. And so if I live today because he died, should not I live for him so that others would not have to die? Can I repeat that? If I live because he died, should not I live for him so that others would not have to die? Doesn't that make sense? Now, you and I, you and I get this. You and I understand this, that, that there ought to be some kind of change in our life. When I, early on in our marriage, I, I would bring home a rifle, a new rifle, and I'd tell my wife, this is the last one. From henceforth, I will not buy another rifle. And she'd say, oh, Okay. And then I drive home a new truck or an old new truck. This is the last one. I'll never need a new truck again from henceforth. 
Yeah, I was back in kindergarten. I met this girl named Shelly. And it wasn't that Shelly. It was another Shelly. And I thought, she's the one. <laughs> then about third grade, there was another one. Fifth grade, there was another one. And I thought, this, she's the one. And then I finally met that Shelly. See, God was preparing me for Shelley way back in my kindergarten years. <laughs> but you, you know what happened at that time? There was a committing of myself to her. Where I said, from henceforth, I don't have need of anyone else. I don't have need of another wife. I don't have need of another person. So we get that. We understand. But we also understand the propensity there that, that we make commitments and we say this and we say that. We go on a diet. Nope. No more this. No more that. No more cake. No more, no more ice cream. Or, or maybe you're going through a health issue and you say, no more of this. No more Dr. Pepper. Whatever the case may be. And you commit yourself to these things over and over and over. And over. We get that. We understand that. But Paul said, listen to me, there is so much more value here when we understand what Christ has done for us. We must come to this conclusion that from this point forward, the moment that we got saved, the moment that we understand truly what Christ has done for us, from henceforth, I should not be living for myself. I've already done that. I've already lived my life. I've already sowed this and I've already sowed that. Why would I go on living the way that I once lived? Paul says, when you understand Jesus Christ, when you understand the death and the sacrifice that was made from henceforth, Paul said, you shouldn't be living for yourself. You shouldn't be going on the way that you were once going. You shouldn't have the desires that you once had. You shouldn't have the same appetites that you once had. You shouldn't have the fulfillment that you once had. From this point forward, you ought to be serving and living for God. So if I say, I don't want to sacrifice to serve, what are you saying? I'm living for myself. If I say, no, God, I need that time for myself. I'm living for myself. If I say, no, God, I don't want to suffer affliction this way. I wonder how many of us have said something like that. Maybe laying in, in bed and sick and afflicted. God, I, I don't want to suffer this way. God, I don't want to deal with this this way. You, you know what we're really saying? God, listen to me. I, I get it. I understand we're flesh. I understand we're weak. I understand all those things. But really, ultimately, what we're saying is, God, you don't know what's best for my life right now. God, why are you putting me through this? And, we, and, and ultimately, we're saying this. I'm living for myself. I want to be real careful here, but I think that, that, that it's, it bears saying. If I say something like this, God, why do I have to be the one to get cancer? got several folks in our church right now that are ravaged by that. But ultimately, if I'm questioning God, I'm really saying this. I'm living for myself. If I say, why does my child have to be the one to go astray? I'm living for myself. If I say, I cannot give up my child to go to the mission field, or I cannot give up my grandchild to go to the mission field, what am I saying? I'm living for myself. God, I don't deserve to be hurt or offended that way. 
then you're saying, I'm living for myself. God, I know I need to tithe and to give to faith promise, and, but I just can't afford it right now. What you're saying is you're living for yourself. God, I'll wait till I retire to serve you. You're living for yourself. If I fail to seek the mind of, a, a mind of God on a matter, what you're saying is I'm living for myself. If I resist the promptings of the Holy Spirit, I'm saying I'm living for myself. If I choose to be comfortable rather than to be convicted and changed and challenged, I'm living for myself. If I refuse to forgive others, I'm saying I'm living for myself. If I hold on to bitterness or past hurts or offenses, what you're saying is, is I'm living for myself. If I say, well, I don't have to be at church all the time. Why does, why does the pastor talk about that? Why does, he, why does he try to get us into Sunday school? And why does he try to do this? No, no, really what you're saying is simply this. It's not, it's not a pastor problem. It's a God problem. And really what you're saying is simply this. I'm living for myself. I don't have to read the Bible all the time. I don't have to go through the plan that the church has. No, really what you're saying is you're living for yourself. And to live to oneself is to make self the ruler. And to make yourself the ruler is to live selfishly. And to live selfishly is unchristlike. And to live this way ultimately is to mock the death of Christ. To take that which is most precious. Because you see, you can't buy salvation. You, you can't inherit salvation. You, you, can't, you can't have it handed down to you. There was only one that could give you eternal life. And if I, if I understand that and then go on living how I want to live and serve how I want to serve and be what I want to be and go where I want to go and do what I want to do, ultimately I'm doing this. I'm mocking the death of my Savior. Paul says, from henceforth... You shouldn't be doing that. Jesus Christ did not die so that you could live like a dead man. (laughs) What do you mean? Before you got saved, you were dead. Everything that about our life produced death. Jesus didn't die so that we could keep living that way. Jesus didn't live. He didn't die so that you could just go on and others would fall into hell as a result of our carelessness and as a result of our uncompassion for others. No, no, Jesus didn't do that. Listen to me. What good? Let me let me just ask us tonight. What good have you done in living for yourself? What good have you done for others in living for yourself? People don't mess up their life living for God. People don't, people don't ruin their life. No, listen to me. Nobody comes, nobody comes into our offices and is broken with a broken life and, and, and having been sold out to the Lord or having been submit, submitting themselves to the Lord or maintain a life of surrender and submission to it. Nobody, nobody comes into our offices with a broken life and says, I've just been living submitted unto him and glorifying God and praising God. Nobody comes into our office that way. You know, you know the kind of people that are broken and that are hurt and that are maimed? Listen, I, I think we include every 
every single one of us, every one of us understand what that's like to live unto ourselves and to have our own desires and our own wishes. And every one of ourselves have been hurt. Every one of ourselves have been broken. Every one of us have, would have to acknowledge that tonight. That's the end of a life lived for oneself. So why would we want to go live that way? Why would we want to go back to that kind of life? So let me ask you, what should be the appropriate response to his sacrificial death for us? We might say it this way. How then should we live knowing what he's done? To what should be that which would influence us? And for what should be influencing us? To live more selfishly, to live more cowardly, to live more sinfully, to live more inwardly, to live a life focused on self or inward? Can we go back to the illustration once again? To live no differently after having been miraculously delivered from utter loss and ruin is to despise or to look down upon the life and death of our neighbor. That's incomprehensible. To know that somebody gave their life for you and set you free and then to go on living as if nothing happened? I was 11 years old. I was mowing yards for a living. Go down the neighborhood and take my, take my lawnmower. Actually, it was my parents' lawnmower. Take their gas and I would go mow yards. And I was on the corner. It was in the middle of the afternoon and, and I was mowing a yard came around the the edge of the curb there and all of a sudden there was a massive explosion at the house next door. I began to see the house engulfed in flames. Fire department showed up and and, uh, right there in the garage, one of the most traumatic things that I've ever seen in my life. The parents of a two-year-old were in the backyard And a two-year-old child died in the flames. Story came out, and it was in the newspaper, and I couldn't do anything. I I mean, I wanted to rush into the flames and grab the child. It was too late. Firemen obviously restrained people from going. It was too late. There was nothing we could do. We found out later that the man of the home had a gas can in his garage, And not far from the gas can was a refrigerator. The refrigerator had kicked on and there were were fumes that were in the garage and it ignited instantly, caused an explosion in the garage. As an 11-year-old boy, obviously that was traumatic. I didn't know how to process that. I didn't know how to deal with that. How How do you deal with something like that? But to this day, I will not put a gas can in my garage. You say, well, what's, what's the big deal? Because it influenced me. It impacted my life. Somebody died. I, I, I allowed that to influence and impact my life to the point where I will not put a gas can in my garage. And I'm asking us tonight, as we consider what Christ has done for us, what would you think of a person next to you that would take the cross lightly and just say, eh, friend day's coming, 
Other people, they'll reach them. Sunday school campaign, yep. The teacher will work hard. He'll, he'll take care of that. He'll make sure that they show up. He'll make sure that Brother Ted loses. He'll make sure that all this happens. But what would you think about a person that would have that kind of careless attitude, knowing, listen, knowing what Christ has done for us, knowing the sacrifice that it took to do so? You see, we live because he died. So we are to die so that others might live. We live because he died. And we are to die to ourselves so that others may live. If it pleased the Father for the Son to die so that others may live, does it not follow that it should please the Father when we die to ourselves so that others may live? Because he said it, it pleased the Father. He was satisfied with what Christ did on the cross. It pleased him. And so if it pleased the Father for what Jesus Christ did for us so that we could have life, does it not make sense that the Father would be pleased with us if we would die to ourselves, so that others may live? Does it not please the Father that you would sacrifice on a Saturday and go out visiting? Does it please the Father that you would would give sacrificially so that others could go to a foreign field and preach the gospel just like it's preached here and others could be saved upon the world? Does it not please the Father that you would do this, that you would take time to pray for the services here and to pray for the lost and, and to give up some time on a Saturday night and give up some time on a Sunday morning and come and pray and be in your place and serve and do so that others might live? Does it not please the Father that we would die to ourselves so that that would happen? In fact, I think that we could even consider this. Do you think that he is any less pleased? And and to some degree, I think this, that perhaps it probably pleases the Father even more because he knows who we really are. He knows our propensities. So what does, what does living for him look like? Well, I think that we could say this, living with eternity in mind. Living only to seek to please him. Live knowing that I am accountable to him. Live and seek to actively bring others to Christ. Live seeking to reconcile others. In fact, he goes on in in verses 17 through the end of the passage. And and basically, Paul is saying this. You've been given a life and and you're new. You're, You're a new person in Christ. And so because of that, you ought to be doing this, bringing others to him, reconciling the loss to them and being an ambassador for him, doing exactly what Christ has done for you. You do that for others. You say, Brother David. I've been saved for a good while, but I have not been living unto him. Paul said, from henceforth, live unto him who died for you and rose again. So could we just say this? Start right now. Start right now. You say, Brother David, I haven't been living for God. I haven't been, I haven't been sacrificially living for him. Well, Paul said that, that, it, that he died for all, and that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. 
If that's the case and you, you acknowledge that tonight, I, listen, I think that every one of us would have, to, would have to acknowledge that there's things in my life that I would have to say, I'm living for myself right now. And there's things that I need to lose, there's things that I need to give up, and there's things that I need to sacrifice. Every single one of us. And when we come to that recognition, instantly, we ought to say this, from this point forward, I'm going to live for him. From this point forward, I'm going to go back on visitation. From this point forward, I'm going to get back in the bus ministry. From this point forward, I'm going to pray for the lost. From this point forward, from henceforth, I'm going to love him and serve him with all of my heart and to the best of my ability. Give my life for him. He died for me so that I could have life. I'm going to die to myself so that others may live. And so tonight, maybe you're here and you're saying, Brother David, I'm already doing that. Praise the Lord. I commend you. I encourage you to keep on living unto him. But maybe there's some tonight that God may be saying to you tonight, you're living for yourself. And tonight is the time to say, from henceforth. From henceforth, I'm going to live unto him that died for me and that rose again. As you bow tonight and as we close our eyes, asking God to help us, asking God to be the focus of our life, asking God to be that which is most important. Father, tonight... How could we not understand and grasp the reality that there was no other sacrifice that could be made other than your son, Jesus Christ? There's no one else that could have done that for us. Every one of us were dead in trespasses and sin. And you have done the miraculous in giving us eternal life. How could we not be broken by that? How could we not allow our life to be affected, our thinking to be affected, our lifestyle to be affected, our attitude toward the loss to be affected, our attitude towards church and to the things of God and to ministry. Oh yes, ministry is very, very important. And so God tonight, however you have dealt and whatever you need to say to your people and however you need to approach, Lord, each and every one of our hearts, I pray that we would even just stop and recognize. Maybe we just need to come tonight and to say, God, thank you for the death of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for what you've miraculously done for me. I owe you my life and I owe you everything. And so God, have your will and have your way, I pray in Christ's wonderful name. Amen.